I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we try to cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. My guest today is Dr. Damian Costello, Vice Postulator for the Cause of Canonization of Servant of God, Nicholas Black Elk. Dr. Costello received his PhD in theological studies from the University of Dayton and specializes in the intersection of Catholic theology, indigenous spiritual traditions, and colonial history. He's a faculty member of uh, what was formerly called the North American Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies, now more commonly known as NATE, an indigenous learning community. This is an academic community associated with four different universities. It grants undergraduate, master's, and doctoral degrees. He's also a founding member and the an American co-chair of the newly formed Indigenous Catholic Research Fellowship. Dr. Costello was born and raised in Vermont, and his work is informed by five years of ethnographic work on the Navajo Nation. Um, and, and really, to the topic at hand today, he's an international expert in the life and legacy of, of Nicholas Black Elk uh, and the author of Black Elk, Colonialism and Lakota Catholicism. Dr. Costello, welcome to our program. Thank you so much, Chris. It's great to see you again. It's great to see you too. And this is, uh, this is a topic that we've talked about uh, a number of times, a topic near and dear to my heart, and a topic that I think needs to be out there a little more. There are a lot of people in, this, in, in, in South Dakota, in the upper Midwest, in our, in our listening area, tuning into this podcast. They don't necessarily know who Nicholas Black Elk is, and he's just got this fascinating story. And as we kind of alluded there in the intro, like, He's, he's on the track to, to sainthood. You know, we, we reserve, uh, reserve judgment unto the judgment of the church, which takes time and discernment. Um, but you've just got some real expertise in, in Black Elk, and I'm excited to dig into his story a little bit. So maybe um, just to get started, take us back. You've got a, just a great personal story. Like, how did you come to know? How were you introduced to Nicholas Black Elk? Um. Well, so Nicholas Black Elk really brings together uh, in my life two sides that I've always uh, never really knew how to integrate. You know, I'm, I'm from Vermont, which I'm sure your listeners know is, is known as a quote unquote progressive place. Uh, and native culture was sort of always in the air. And I was always very interested in that. But I was also raised very traditionally Catholic. Uh, I come from Polish Catholics. In fact, the church brought my uh, mother's parents over. They were concentration camp survivors. Mm. So we have um, this almost tribal allegiance to the church in addition to a very, very deep faith. Mm. And so I was always interested in those two things. I went to a small Catholic college, Mount St. Mary's University in Maryland. And um, I was one of those kids who was very good at exploring what they wanted to do in the library, but maybe not so much in class all the time. And so I was supposed to be doing my homework. I went to the shelf and I saw this book, Black Elk Speaks, and um, pulled it down and, and I read it and it, uh, it blew me away like a lot of people across, across the globe. Um, it's a story of a young Lakota boy who has this great vision at the age of nine. For, for 12 days, he's unconscious. He's taken up to the spirit world and he's given this uh, great commission, you know, very uh, biblical call, in fact, to lead his people down the sacred red road to the flowering uh, tree. And he's given gifts to heal, the gifts um, to destroy. And he's sent back to earth for this 
impressive, uh, massive calling that he, he spends his whole life trying to discern. And so in the midst of this, he's um, at the Battle of Little Bighorn. He's at Wounded Knee. He's, he travels uh, with Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show. And so he's at all these iconic events and gives you a, a real insider view to those, those events. And so I had this book and it, and it blew me away. And that very summer, I got to go, you know, one of these classic starry-eyed Easterners that you South Dakotans come across in droves uh, <laughs> coming out to the West, you know, like the big sky. It's so beautiful. We get to the Black Hills. And that summer, I got to do that. Um, and I think it was the following semester in fall, like right around this time of year, I had the book when I walked into my theology class and the professor said, wow, great book. And I, of course, said, yeah. He said, do you know that he was Catholic? And I had no idea. You didn't know before that. Oh, no, no, no. I, I gravitated to this book because to me, it sort of um, provided this insider perspective on Native culture and then sort of processed a lot of the feelings that I was going through um, about, you know, what we're dealing with as a human family. I mean, there's so many mm -hmm. issues that we're, we're struggling with um, that run the ga gamut of all political spectrums. And so when I heard that, it blew me away. I didn't realize, wait a minute, Native people can be Catholic too? Yeah. I thought the church just wanted to destroy them. You know, I had those tropes that I sure. had been given um, in my sort of secular Vermont education. Yeah. So... I did a whole semester project trying to sort this out. Um, how is he a sincere Catholic, which we'll get a little bit more into, and a, and a proactive Catholic, not just sort of a you know, Sunday-only back-of-the-church Catholic, but a leader? Yeah. And how did he live out his calling as a, as a native holy man? Yeah, and to use maybe one of the churchy buzzwords that we hear today is like he was a missionary disciple. I mean, he was owning it. And I want to hear more about that. I love how you set up, though, too, is that is that this sort of grew organically. His experience of faith came from, a, it, it didn't come from like a place of rupture with his identity as a native person. And this, when we first met, you were in Sioux Falls uh, last year and you gave a talk at a local university. And the, the way you like keyed up the talk on Nicholas Black Elk was, it, it was very, it was compelling. It was something along the lines of, uh, Native Americans discover Christianity. Mm. Sometimes, you know, we've got this secular, these tropes, these narratives of like the colonials discover America or whatever, you know, you've got mm. Christopher Columbus as if there was no other world, but to actually just flip it on its head and say, no, there's this people that was already here. And, and in, with this, as history works, people's coming together. And it was an eye opening thing. So maybe, could you just tell us a little bit about you know, how, how Catholicism for Black Elk grew out of his own just personal spiritual quest. Well, and I'd like to follow up on what you alluded to, sort of um, getting ourselves into a different frame of mind. Mm. Um, we are so used to thinking that it's the Europeans, it's the big institutions that are the, the agents, and then Native people or lay Catholics or whatever, we're the recipients of what they do. And actually, if you look at this history, it's just as illuminating and sometimes often more so to think, okay, how are native people engaging these new opportunities? Now, there's certainly tons of tragedy. We're not trying to erase that. But in the midst of that, native peoples made uh, choices to actively engage aspects of 
new culture in order to survive in this new context. And so Nicholas Black Elk is really an exemplar of that dynamic. Um, so he was from the beginning, even by the standards of his own culture, he was a profoundly spiritual person and, and lived his life on that level. And his Christian journey really began when he went to Europe, first to uh, the East Coast and then Europe with the Buffalo Bill uh, Wild West show. And he, before he left, he, he said very explicitly, he remembers this in Black Elk Speaks, that I, I didn't just go to make money or to be with my friends, which I did, or for the adventure. I wanted to investigate the white world to see what good it had, what I could bring mm. back to my people. You know, these people are here to stay. They must have something good because they won. I'm going to look. And mm. so the three years he spent in this show was an active spiritual quest, which mm. is also in line with native tradition. Um, you are expected to go out in your vision quest, uh, on long journeys to go discover who you are and see how the spirit world reveals itself to you to bring back new power so that the people may live. So Black Elk and uh, the rest of the performers, they're in New York City, they're in London, they're in Paris. And what's really interesting is that they have the opportunity to both inhabit their native identity and culture in a way that they couldn't back on the reservation and to have relationships uh, of relative equality with average Americans and Europeans, right? So they're not, they're not dealing with the trader, the reservation agents, or ranchers who are trying to take their land. They're dealing with people who are interested in them and who they are mm. and respect them. And some of those people were church people, mm. right? And they wanted to share the gospel. They wanted to, uh, you know, of course, they wanted to get, get them baptized. But the natives were very interested in this. They talked about the cathedrals being like sacred teepees of the white man. Um, there's this great story where they went to, I think it's Westminster Abbey, and 40 of the performers, I, I have to um, believe that Black Elk was with them, given his quest, saying, nearer my God to thee in Lakota to the congregation. And they were just blown away. Mm. Wait, wait a minute, how do these people know our song and how do they know it in their own language? Yeah. Um, and a really key dynamic is the song. Uh, there's a, this missionary, uh, I'm sorry, this pastor's wife who recorded that these performers were really interested in the song culture. They were copying the songs. They were, they, in her language, it was, they had an insatiable appetite for hymns. And, and I recall you saying too that this for... With, within the, the native culture, that song is the language of the spirit world. Yes. That is the most uh, direct way that you interact with the spirits. And in fact, you are engaging on their level when you, when you sing in a sacred way. And so... It, and this resonates... I was just going to say, this, this mm -hmm. resonates so much with me. I've been thinking a lot about music lately. But if for the Tolkien fans out there, any Tolkien geeks, mm -hmm. if you've ever read The Cimmerillion... Like, you know that um, th it's kind of this mythical creation story that is, um, it's deeply like uh, Christian in its uh, sacramental vision, if you will. But um, the creator sings all of creation into existence. And that's a, oh, that's a, a, a wonderful correlation because that is, um, it's explicit to different degrees in different native cultures, but that's how they understand uh, in general the origin 
and not just the origin in some sort of mythic past, but the, the sort of eternal present that it is sung into existence. And by participating mm-hmm. in that song, you are participating in that uh, ongoing creation of, of all that we see with the spirits. Do you want to say a word about this, this journey kind of out into the white world, the encounter with scripture? I, Absolutely. Uh, that was the other thing that it is clear um, Black Elk was picking up on. Um, he, there's three or four letters that he wrote back during this time, and every one of them make some sort of reference to scripture. And the most important one is the one that he wrote when he came back. So after three years, he comes back. You can imagine he's overwhelmed. He's so, there's this relief to get home. Um, but there's also this period of processing mm. where, um, you know, I talk about myself, you know, it's not necessarily when you're away from home that it all makes sense. It's after when you come home and you see what the new insights are relevant to uh, your new life. Well, so Black Elk writes, writes to all Lakota people in Lakota in the, uh, the newspaper um, saying that he went on this journey. I, I wanted to invite, investigate the, the uh, white world and I didn't find anything except for one thing. And the one thing that I found was, and he, and he quotes, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, love, the great Pauline treatise on love. And in its entirety, he says, that is what I found. And that's what we need to follow. And he says, now that's how I live. And Lakota people, all of you should live like that too. So there's this clear engagement with scripture uh, when we'll talk about a little bit more about this later, that flowers fully in his Catholic life. Um, but that doesn't replace an understanding of the spirit world or compassion, but gives it a new hue, like a, a new profundity for the new situation. I'm just so struck by that because you've got St. Paul writing to the Corinthians 1900 years before, roughly, you know, before Black Elk reads this. And it's like, it really is ever ancient, ever new that this, you know, the greatest of these is love, that that would speak to somebody's heart who, who, ne- who wasn't like raised in a Christian culture, mm-hmm. but is encountering this like tabula rasa for the first time, like, that's it, that's true. And then, and then wanting to tell others about it. And that's something that I think, you know, in my context where I live in Vermont, where I think a lot of people are coming um, for various reasons, um, some deeper and some a lot more shallower right off the whole Christian story, right? There's so much else everywhere, so much to find everywhere else. Yes. But there's that, that deep uh, meaning and truth that somebody like Black Elk, who has, is as quote unquote exotic as you can get, discovers yeah. and makes part of his life and, until he dies. Yeah. Help us to see this anew with fresh eyes and new discovery. Well, I think that's really important too, is we're sort of entering this 21st century and like, what is the next era for the church? Some people are starting to talk about a new apostolic age when in mm-hmm. fact, this Christianity is like, there are so many people that don't have a background in, in scripture, theology, like we just, there are a lot of Americans that don't have any idea. So we're like entering this new time in which it is something completely new. 
So if you're just joining us, this is Chris Moats, host of Faith and Politics. I'm joined by Damian Costello, a theologian and expert in Nicholas Black Elk. In fact, the vice postulator for the cause of canonization, serving a God Black, uh, Nicholas Black Elk. The cause was opened a couple of years ago by Bishop Groose, then uh, Bishop of, of Rapid City. And, and we're talking about the life of Black Elk. And, and towards the end, we're, before we end, we've got, got 10 or so minutes left. We really got to talk about why Black Elk is just so important actually for our day. Before we get there, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Thomas Aquinas. You've, you've sort of uh, made this analogy uh, with, a, with a Aquinas. Can you unpack uh, a little bit of how we can understand Black Elk better if we understand St. Thomas Aquinas? So to just uh, say a little bit more about Black Elk, um, there's sort of two sides to him, and it's represented by the way we come to him. I came to him because I was interested in the native side, and, and now people are coming to him because they, they see this incredible, uh, dynamic, vibrant witness. You know, you can find the details to this, but he's credited with bringing 400 people into the church, vibrant, dynamic lay preacher, uh, leader of his community. Um, and so I think the thing that uh, has really unique potential for the church is what does this native side mean? And if you think about Thomas Aquinas, um, he is famous for engaging a non-Christian culture and baptizing it and bringing it into the church. Now, we think of scholasticism as being, well, there's nothing more traditional than that, right? And currently, we want to get back to uh, building a sort of very strong Catholic foundation, return to scholasticism. Mm. We, we don't realize that at the time, it was one of the most scandalous things that had happened in the mm. church. It had been lost to the West, Aristotle, yeah. uh, we recovered it from the Muslims, and Aquinas was at the forefront of, okay, this is a different philosophical perspective. It helps correct some of the uh, Manichaean liabilities that we tend to have in our tradition. Yeah. Let's read it through Christ. Yes. And that's what he did. He, he gave a Christ-centered uh, theology using Aristotle that transformed the church. Now, this relates to Black Elk because he is somebody who did that with this Lakota tradition. You go and you look at uh, the other book that he's, uh, he collaborated with, The Sacred Pipe. It's just an account of Lakota tradition. You can see how clearly he, do- he reads Lakota tradition through Christian theology and talks about Lakota tradition as being something that we can learn from to sort of re-spiritualize, this is more my language now, our relationship with uh, creation. Mm. Which is, you know, and we could do a whole episode on on Aquinas and Aristotle, which is super, super important to even just like our social life, our politics. Um, It's for for another time. We don't have time, unfortunately, to get into all that. But... I mean, I think the analogy holds, and we can even see like this, um, if you if you will, sort of this this new breath of of what Pope Benedict called an integral ecology. Mm-hmm. That that some of this theological thought, which is like d- deeply Aristotelian, actually, mm-hmm. um, is is so important to our life in society, to our understanding of ourselves uh, in relation to God, our understanding of ourselves in relation to neighbor. So even just like um, an openness 
um, to some of the truths, to, to, to some of the experiences that Nicholas Black Elk had uh, can be so, so important for us. Um, and I love how, too, how you mentioned, like, I mean, he was fully Catholic. Like, he really loved, I mean, the, you, the rosary, Latin chant. We've already talked about scripture. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not dismissing what, what it is he's receiving. That, I think, is the most important and beautiful part of uh, his witness. You know, I think in my childhood, in my experience, I was always told, well, wait a minute, either you say the rosary and you go to adoration and you love the Lord Jesus, or you, um, you go outside and you appreciate and, and act in the natural world. And that was not a distinction that Black Elk ever made or needed to make. He, he was known for his devotion to the rosary. In fact, he won a great anecdote. I love this. He didn't say, oh, um, Stephen Standing Bear's house, that's, that's a mile and a half down the road. He said, well, that's, that's about three rosaries. <laughs> Meaning that that's how many rosaries he said to walk there. Mm. And there's this other great anecdote, anecdote um, his grandchildren's memories, which, you know, the interviewer is asking about the Lakota-themed ones. And they say, yeah, he used to sing us to sleep with Latin chant. With mm. songs from the, the high mass. So there's no distinction. He's at home in both, but that should not also be received as, well, it's just sort of a cheap syncretism. Sure. Everything is in light of Christ. Amen. And that's, Amen. that's the most important thing. Welcome, Holy Spirit. We've got, we've got about five or so minutes left. And, and now kind of laying a little bit of foundation, I do want to transition into the present day. Why... Why is Nicholas Black Elk an important figure for us today as Catholics, as Americans? Um, so I, I, mean, I think there's lots of reasons, uh, but I, Chris, I know we've talked about this. Uh, we are at a place in our communities where we are extremely divided. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot at stake, of course, uh, but we are finding more and more ways to divide ourselves. And Nicholas Black Elk, uh, compared with us, lived in an incredibly difficult time. Mm. The stakes were, were very high. The suffering was great. I mean, he had a number of ch- children and stepchildren die before him, mm. his first wife. Real tragedy and uh, a real opportunity for bitterness. I mean, let's face it. You know, if, if someone was to come into our community, take us away from it, move us elsewhere, and we found it very difficult to survive. It would be yeah. very easy for us to, to get embittered. He was not like this. Yeah. And his faith, in fact, was the foundation, I believe, for why he was able to live with such hope. Yeah. He was known for engaging everyone. You know, it didn't matter if it was his neighbor next door that he's having a dispute over with you know, land or a former enemy from a different tribe or somebody like me who showed up and said, you know, Oh, grandfather Nicholas, tell, teach me the ways. Um, He was a real model of hope uh, in what was a collapsing world for him. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't spend a lot of time kind of dwelling uh, within the woundedness that he experienced, but you did briefly mention at the start that he was present uh, at the battle of little bighorn was present at the wounded knee uh, massacre. And then actually was kind of forced to flee his homeland. He went to to Canada, sitting bull for, for a while, you know, kind of an exile in a foreign land, so to speak. Um, so just to be in these real, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I'm just so touched by his story 
is that he bore the wounds of mm. his time in a really acute way, but is, um, is kind of like an, uh, an icon. And that's what the saints do, is they serve as icon or images for us of, as models. And he mm. is an icon of reconciliation. And um, I, I think a real moment of opportunity maybe um, for places like South Dakota, you know, it's real easy, or I should say it's easier for me, an outsider, to come in and, you know, pick and choose where I go and what I want to engage. Uh, it's much more difficult to live in places that are structured by long, difficult relationships, right? And it's not just a matter of one side is all right and one side's all wrong. And this, I think he is maybe one ingredient to helping us to look at these things with new eyes and entering into new spaces with new spirits and to see, and I'll, and I'll say this, I'm actually quite surprised. You know, when I go to South Dakota, I recognize that, you know, the non-natives, non-native people of South Dakota, uh, white South Dakotans actually have more in common with uh, Lakota people in a lot of ways than I do. Mm. I wasn't given the, you know, the long tradition of hunting, for example, and I lament that there's a lot, there's commonality there that I think that maybe sometimes we don't see that there's potential for uh, crossover and new relationships. Mm, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. I've never really thought about that before. Just being, um, cause I think a lot of South Dakotans, uh, native, non-native do really love the outdoors. You know, there's a love for the, just the grandeur of creation um, you know, coming from different places, different experiences, obviously, um, those of us like you and me that are, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm straight up Irish German, like it's that I have that immigrant experience in my background going back, you know, 120 years coming to this country, but it's very much an agricultural farming. So it's, there are some differences in the experience of, of creation too, but, um, but native, uh, you know, before Lakotas came out to the plains, they were farmers, right? Mm. And there is a, a way in which even to this day farming people engage their environment the creation around them in a in a meaningful embodied way that not everybody can say and so maybe nicholas blackout can give uh people who come from an agricultural background a ranching background wait a minute i'm i'm living a way that in which i meaningfully engage with these different species maybe yeah. i can I can look at that in a more spiritual way too, without turning it into pantheism yeah. or worshiping I mean, other beings. Faithfulness is the priority number one. Yeah. Amen. So maybe just in 30 seconds left, can you give us an update on the cause of canonization or like, you know, where are we at? What's yeah. the next step? It's all the local research is done, which is the hardest part. Um, all the people were interviewed that knew him, um, that had memories of him and who are experts in him like me and it was all packaged up and now it's at the i wish i got the congregation for the causes of sainthood i think it's mm, called yep and they're going over that now um so it's one of those stages like you get a call tomorrow and say oh wow we're ready to go or it could be another year or two before something happens you just don't know well, one of the things that we, we wait for is miracles, you know, as we're going through this process. So I would just say, you know, if, if anybody who out there listening is really just really pierced by the experience in our country right now, pray to Nicholas Black Elk. Yeah. Get Dr. Your Costello. Out. 
get your rosaries out, go for walks and see if you can uh, say three or four on the way. <laughs> Amen. Dr. Amen. Costello, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Chris.